I'd like to say a few words about selfing tonight. S-E-L-F-I-N-G. Its meaning will become more clear as we go on. I'd like to start from where we left off last night. If you recall at the end, uh, some hints on how to investigate physical pain. If you recall that one of the uh, points that was emphasized was the importance of separating, distinguishing, being able to tell that there's a body and then sometimes some part of the body, let's say a knee or whatever, and then sometimes a feeling, in this case a a feeling of suffering, dukkha, uh, would be mingled in with that part of the body. And then there are also thoughts about either the body or those feelings that are happening in that part of the body. And then there's also the knowing. There's just this awareness, this capacity in us to know. And this knowing knows that thinking is happening and it knows that, let's say, uh, painful feelings are happening in the body somewhere. And so, if you remember one approach is to fix your attention on the physical pain and then keep moving back and forth between the physical pain and, let's say, the, the thinking about the physical pain and eventually coming to see, oh, this is the body. This is, these are sensations happening in the body. Uh, these are thoughts about it. They seem to have some relationship, but they're different. The thought, thoughts are not the body and the body are not the thoughts. Do it many times sometimes. Well, actually, we do it many times with many instances of pain over a long period of practice. It's not something that you solve in one sitting. Or you come to locate the physical sensations, you uh, bring attention to them, and then you separate from them in terms of the knowing. Oh, these are these sensations which are happening in uh, the knee that are painful. And there's something something that seems to know, has this capacity to just know. The knowing isn't in pain. The knowing just knows. But you you have to see this. It's not for you to just uh, believe what I'm saying. And the pain doesn't seem to know. It just does paining. You know, it's just pain, 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 pain. That's all it knows how to do. And the knowing, all it knows how to do is know. No, 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 no. And as you start uh, doing this, something interesting happens. Now, the One of the main reasons for this kind of investigation is that the separation, sorting out, seeing this, separating this from that, prevents uh, selfing from happening. That is, the gathering together of this pain and the claiming of it by something known as I or mine. That is, if there's no investigation, it happens very quickly, then the, the mind claims, something in the mind identifies with that physical pain, appropriates it, takes it on, makes it its own, and says, this is my pain. I'm in pain. Poor me. So there's no investigation. What you could call pain escalates and can become what you can call suffering. 
No one's denying that they're unpleasant sensations. I'm not saying it's in your mind. I'm not saying that you, you know, it's uh, psychosomatic or you're imagining things. I'm not saying that at all. The sensations are there. But if there's no investigation, the mind very quickly gathers it in or the, sometimes the way it feels is the pain breaks in on everything and just uh, overwhelms the mind and something gets claimed and you have suffering or even sorrow. It's not just the pain anymore. Now it escalates and it's a much bigger thing. And we can't tell that what part of it is mind and what part of it is body because it's happened so quickly. And we hold this notion of being a self with such conviction. So, this, this selfing is just a term for any time in a given moment when we build up this sense of self out of something. Okay. So, let's, let's move into that more generally. Um, Perhaps that will uh, help us understand the example of investigating physical pain, which I know is difficult to do and very important to do. But you'll see that it's a much more general thing involved. And it's at the heart of the practice. Okay. I think what would help us is if, uh, to begin with, we made a distinction between a self-image so we know the difference between self-image and self-knowledge. Self-image and self-knowledge. Um, self-image would be images that come up in the mind about ourselves. We have these images about ourselves. Kind of like uh, verbal conclusions or their pictures us looking a certain way, driving a certain car, or whatever it is. They're verbal and, and uh, conclusions in words or conclusions in pictures, and they're sort of frozen to some degree. There's a, a sense of this is who I am, an image of ourselves, a self-image. Now, these self-images, and if you don't agree with this, uh, that's fine. Just investigate and see if there's some truth to it. These self-images are an enormous burden that we, we carry around. Now, it seems as if we keep manufacturing them, images about ourselves, in order to get security. It feels secure because when we create a nice one, and they're usually very idealized. You know, something extraordinary, so pure and beautiful and brilliant and beautiful, handsome, and, you know, all these, anyways, they're idealizations. Um, and the creation of that image makes us feel good. It gives us, we think it gives us some security. We also have some very negative ones, so they take turns. Just awful pictures of ourselves, also idealized. <laughs> you know, no, one, no one's that bad. I mean, you're not that bad a yogi. People, you know, in the interviews it comes out a lot, so I can't help if I... It's helpful that, for example, in interviews, many people think they're the only one who, uh, who's not following the breath absolutely all 60 minutes of an hour sitting. <laughs> and so I, I think people think I'm trying to make them feel good, but I, I'm not. I'm just telling you the truth. That's, you know, it's not what's happening. Okay. But, so these self-images... Um, if you look carefully at them, you'll see that, especially these positive ones, seem to be designed to make us feel good. 
Sometimes there's something we're growing into. It's an image of ourselves that's a little ahead of ourselves. And so we start to dress a certain way and talk a certain way and uh, buy different kinds of objects, rearrange our house a certain way, uh, moving in the direction of trying to create a new something or other that we're going to be at some point. And it can be comforting and reassuring. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem to lead to security. Uh, quite the contrary, it keeps us very insecure because these images are a little bit like um, very rare rare porcelain, you know, something from a museum that would cost lots of money that we're carrying around. It's very beautiful and also very delicate and it can break very, very easily. And that's what happens. We're trying to protect ourselves. It's a bit like a mask, these images. But periodically what happens is something, something in the world uh, pushes us around a bit, an event or a person, and suddenly something crawls out that doesn't quite fit the image and there, the image just falls into pieces, crushed. You know, I'm not what I thought I was. I'm a good person. I thought I was a good person. Then suddenly someone does, says one thing wrong and you lash out at them and scream at them. Maybe it's your child, whatever. And suddenly, where did that come from? Who said that? Well, it was you was me. And suddenly the image just falls to the ground. But we have ways of scotch taping it together and putting it back up again. But it's a very tiring way to go through life. I just want to make sure uh, this self-image idea is... I mean, I know you understand, but I want to uh, deepen it because in a moment, I hope you will tie it to impermanence and self-knowledge and our practice. So this uh, periodic production of images that the mind does about itself, uh, it's another way of looking at it. It's as if the mind is constantly describing itself. It's sort of addicted to self-description. It will talk a lot about old images, sort of, I used to be a such and such kind of person. Again, oversimplifying perhaps 25 years or 30 years. During that time, I was a such and such kind of person. I was very worldly. And then a new description comes up. Now I'm very spiritual. Another word which stands for maybe the last 10 years. Okay, so if you listen to your mind, see if this is true. A lot of its time is spent describing itself to itself. And I think it's safe to say, to use a a word as strong as addiction. In other words, It's endlessly describing itself to itself, what it was, what it is, what it might be. If it meditates, then it will be something wonderful in a future date, or maybe by the end of the retreat. (laughs) Uh, And and it goes on and on. It's quite tiring. And all of these are sort of either actual or obsolete or future images that we're going to use to stand for ourselves. This is me. Okay. It's also a bit like... uh, You know, when people graduate high school or college, or when they get married, or when there's a communion or a bar mitzvah, or some... You go to a professional photographer, and they take a snap, just a snapshot, 
and it's, when it's well done, the person has perfect white teeth and nice rosy cheeks and there's always a great smile. It might have taken hours to get that, finally that f- fraction of a second, frozen in time, that picture, which then gets blown up and it's put on the piano and in your wallet and you, know, you mail them to different relatives. And that's you, you know. That, that image stands for you. That, that's me. And it makes us feel good. We look over at the piano and there we are with rosy cheeks and nice teeth. Nice, the suit is nice and the tie or the dress or what have you. Or in the, uh, I don't think they do it anymore, but it used to be, if you remember in the movies, those of you who are over 30, where when you go to a movie, they would have three or four frames from what the movie was going to be. It would have the title and then it would have scenes from the movie. And usually it would be a woman semi-undressed and a man with big muscles killing someone or <laughs> shooting. You know. okay. But you would look at it and if it was done right, well, this is what the movie is going to be about and you know, let me in there, here's my money. <laughs> but then often you'd go in and those frames were not representative of what you saw. You know, you'd come in and, you know, I want my money back. They were, <laughs> There wasn't that much killing in it. And there was only about one minute of nudity. These, this was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it's the same thing over and over. You see, it's sort of a simplification, an enormous simplification of something that's quite alive and changing. And when you come to a person in very unpredictable ways. So the self-image problem is that we're producing these simplifications. We're spending a lot of time protecting them. They get jostled and broken, threatened. On a retreat, they get threatened. I don't know if any of you have noticed. Some of, some of our most cherished self-images, unfortunately, just fall to the ground right on your cushion right here. Because so much stuff comes out that is not what you bargained for. You know, like, if you, now, if you allow yourself to be aware of it, because that's the other thing, with the, the problem of, of the image, we defend it not only from other people by trying to present ourselves as consistently as we can in terms of who it is we think we are, think we are, but also when evidence comes up inside, which is, shows that we aren't really that, at least not in this moment, we have ways of denying it, uh, avoiding it, or blaming someone else. Let me give you a cute one. Happened just the other day. Those of you who were in the hall, do you remember there was no one here to hit the bell at the 12.15 sitting? Does anyone remember that? Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, let me tell you what really happened. Now, I don't know if what your imagination is made up. Okay. But anyway, what happened uh, actually was that uh, it, was, it was my problem. It was my fault. Um, I've been leading a lot of retreats in Cambridge, though, where lunchtime is 12.30, and I'm a little bit dizzy with retreats, you know, so... I was having an interview with someone. Some of the interview, we not only have some of the formal interviews, but other people come and some interviews go much longer for, uh, that it's necessary. And I looked over the clock and I saw that it was 12.20 and I said, well, I have uh, 10 more minutes to go or five more minutes to go because uh, I'd been going to lunch at 12.30 in our Cambridge retreats, but here lunch is 12.15, right? Okay, so then I thought I was going down a bit earlier because I started to go down earlier than 12.30. And I see everyone pouring out of, of the hall. And uh, one of my uh, images fell to the ground. 
<laughs> Larry, the dedicated teacher, reliable, someone you can really count on. You know, sits with the yogis, try to be, as almost every sitting is there sitting right in the trenches with the troops, you know, just. Uh, and so it was, in a very small way, humiliating. Okay. It, it wasn't that bad, but it was something happened, definitely. And then immediately, the mind is so cute. Immediately what came up is, oh, it's all right, because the bell from lunch rang, and they're going to think. <laughs> you already understand. They're going to think that you knew that the bell from lunch would ring so that you wouldn't have to go down. And they're intelligent. They'd figure it out. And they also want to eat. So everyone would get there on time. And they'd think that you did that intentionally. <laughs> It doesn't end here. So, I mean, I, I, it wasn't, you know, I smiled. It was hilarious, actually. Now, to hear the mind struggling so hard, you know, to defend itself. Then, a little bit later, there was a note on the bulletin board, and whoever it is doesn't have to raise their hand. If they want to, they can. It was anonymous. It, it was, someone's name was Meta. I don't know. It just said Meta. <laughs> okay. At any rate, uh, what it said was, are you aware of the fact that nobody rang the bell at 12.15 in the hall? And immediately that same little voice, that Kilesha, that Kilesha crawled out from under a rock again and said, why don't you answer this person with a note and tell them, well, you see, I knew that that was going to happen. <laughs> and I was like, where is this coming from? You know, so devious. And I'm such, you know, a straightforward you know, dedicated teacher and all of the rest of that. Okay. At any rate, so it's that kind of thing. Uh, I didn't send a note, fortunately, or I wouldn't be telling the story, obviously. Uh, um, okay. So we have these, uh, in, so, so in a sense, the mind is producing this stuff. And it, whether it's on a retreat or often in a crisis in life, these images which have been built up just fall to the ground. And what pours out are, is a much more complicated uh, sense of ourselves that can't be squeezed into any one image or any set of images. It just can't. And then we have the problem of either uh, hiding, be feeling disgraced. Sometimes people commit suicide. As I understand it from certain biographies during the, the Depression, in the 20s in this country, people who lost, you know, their bank account went down overnight sometimes. They just lost fortunes. And there was such a strong identification with the amount of money that they had that they jumped out of windows and killed themselves. I mean, it can be that powerful to have the image can uh, take over to that degree. Um, or, of course, what could happen is, and this is the next step where we come to self-knowledge. Self-image and self-knowledge in a way are opposed to each other. A self-image is this simplification and it's always trying to get, it's always trying to get better images to take on for itself so that whatever it is that's feeling better will be feel, feeling even better by having that image. Self-knowledge, of course, is much wider. Self-knowledge is not a simplification and it's our practice. And our practice is being open to, the, to what's actually, what is a person, who am I? And again, it's not some one statement that you can put out and say, I am, and then fill in that blank. 
Because no matter what it is, if you try to do that, if you try to answer the question, who am I, with one phrase or even a series of them, what do you do as you start to observe the mind and you'll see that not only does that phrase come up, but a total opposite comes up. It's contradictory. It, uh, you don't believe it. In other words, it's much more complicated. There isn't anything you can point to and say, that's me. That's, who, that's the real me. I don't think so. I've been trying for a long time. I haven't been able to find it. At a certain point, you give up. Uh, now, self-knowledge is very different. Self-image is trying to accumulate and strengthen. It's, uh, it's holding on. It's a, a kind of greed. It's a craving. It's a kilesa, clearly. It's trying to get something. Wisdom is the opposite. Self, uh, the, the images is an attempt at security, but it turns out to make us more insecure because of the constant need to protect and maintain these images and come up with new ones and so forth. The way of wisdom or self-knowledge, which is just seeing what's there, seeing these images, they're included. Seeing the images is not to crush them in any way. It's actually with compassion to see what we've done, how we have this need to endlessly describe ourselves in certain ways to ourselves and to others, to convince ourselves of something that we're okay, that we're worthwhile, that we're a solid person, that we really, truly exist in a certain way. Self-knowledge is just the opposite. The security doesn't come from accumulation, but from letting go. So that when you're mainly dealing with self-images and you start to look, you might say what you find out are what turns up, this is what I am. Oh, I'm a this, I'm a that. And often in the early stages of meditation, a lot of what we're concerned about is what turns up in the practice and we see that these are facets of ourself. This is what I am and this is what I am and this is what I am. We see different aspects of ourself. As the practice starts to move, uh, that becomes much less interesting. Rather than finding out what we are, it becomes something rather different. It becomes what we aren't. And it turns out that no matter what it is that you can point to, it's not that. And so the letting go starts to, especially when you begin to understand that it's in the letting go that there is a coming to something that really is, does give some measure of fulfillment and security. It's not in any of these images. It's not in any of that. But rather it's in the letting go of the attachment to them. It's not that we clean out our minds and we're blank. It's that more and more we let go of the need to attach to anything as being me. The images still come up, no matter how much you, no matter how much you practice, or let's, I don't know, I can't say that for sure, but certainly for a long time, images come up. The problem isn't so much the images, it's what happens with them. And it's very, very subtle, very refined. And as you probably know, all, all the great spiritual traditions are concerned with the problem of the ego, with letting go and being egoless or being humble. Um, excuse me for a moment. It was Jesus who said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But the inner meaning of that has nothing to do really with money. But the, the rich man is someone whose ego is filled up. It could be about money, but that's not really it. 
And so a lot of the spiritual traditions that I know, the major ones, all understand that the suffering in the world is due to this problem of self-cherishing, creating this sense of separateness and cherishing that over and above anything else. Uh, In Buddhism, one of the most uh, economical statements for the whole teaching of the Buddha has to do with something that the Buddha said, where he uttered, said, uh, never attach to anything, anything whatsoever as being I or mine. Under no conditions attached to anything whatsoever as being I or mine. And in a way, all of our whole practice is really leading in that direction, preparing us, the samadhi work, the work on improving ethics, everything we're doing, shila and samadhi and the vipassana work, all of that is finally has to do with this notion of the self, of seeing the great damage that selfing does, mainly because it's an illusion. In other words, we have, with great conviction, we hold a form of misknowledge. The misknowledge is that we are something solid, that there is a core to us. And of course, it's already suspicious as to whether that's so when you start to listen how much the mind is describing itself to itself. If we were so solid, you know, if it was something that was compact, rather than something that seems to be episodic and coming in, in bursts and perishable, then why, is the, why are we convincing ourselves so much? I used to be, I will be, I am. I mean, it seems like the mind is, uh, is addicted to describing itself to itself and trying to endlessly convince itself of its own worth. Listen to, listen to the mind. See if that's true. It may not be for you. And so, uh, the Buddha and everyone else has seen that real happiness comes from the eradication of this attachment to I and mine. And that the suffering, that suffering comes from the birth of this I and mine. Now, the Buddha also said at one point, He talked about birth is suffering. Probably some of you have heard that, as the Buddha says it often. Birth is suffering. And it's meant in a number of senses. One is that physical birth, that it's, it's painful for a child to be born. It also means that to be born, to have a body and to have a mind, to be here, is to put yourself in a field where suffering happens. If we didn't have this body, if we weren't who we are, we wouldn't be suffering right now. But we are, so we suffer. That means to be born is to enter into a a realm where suffering is quite predominant. The human realm for all of us. There's another meaning to it as well. In this case, and this is the meaning I prefer to use for our work right now, is that the birth that the Buddha is talking about is really not the birth of a physical child or a physical body, but it's the, the reason it's suffering is it's the birth of the eye. That is, it's a mental birth. From moment to moment, every time that the I is born, or is every time selfing happens, every time uh, something in us appropriates what's happening and takes it on as being I or mine, then that will lead to suffering. Whether it's my knee, or it's the pains that are happening, this is happening to me, this is my knee. At that moment, what is born is this I around the pain 
And there's got to be more suffering because of that. Now, let's explore this a little bit. What is being said is that the eye is not a solid, uh, a solid uh, uh, entity that has a core to it, but rather the sense of I arises in given moments and it also falls away in given moments. That is selfing, this uh, claiming, identifying with something and then making that be who I am. This comes and goes all day long so that in that sense, the I is born and dies many, many times during a day, sometimes many, many times during a sitting. And there are, by the way, the, this I and mine has everything to do with the kilesas. So it's very difficult to separate them. That is, greed, hatred, and delusion that we've talked a bit over the past few days. When you look closely to it, it's, it's all, it seems to be in the service of selfing. We're greedy because we want something to enhance the self. And the aggressions are also often to protect the self, to punish somebody who's uh, punished our sense of ourself and so forth. And confusion or delusion is endlessly protecting this process. We don't investigate when we have confusion, when we don't have unawareness. We don't investigate. And so we live in a form of misknowledge, which we hold with great conviction that we exist in a very solid way. And if you make I, then you have suffering. That's what's being said. You don't have to agree with any of this. And it's not meant as a philosophy, by the way. I hope you'll see by the end of this that it's very, very practical. And it's something that ought to be helping. Well, if you don't see it at the end of this, I hope at some point you see it. Uh, It ought to help us with our practice. It's not a question of whether you agree with me or not, because some of the things I'll be saying you can watch in your own practice and see what happens when you do it. The I can be born around anything. The selfing can happen around anything. We can identify with the body. And we then use the body to think that this is who we are. We identify with our age, the age of the body, the weight of the body, um, the particular way in which the body looks. The, uh, if we appropriate that and make that the basis for this sense of self, then we have a self that is derived from our attachment to the body. And then we have problems. We have a lot of suffering. We have people who are embarrassed to say how old they are. Why? What is it? Some disgrace? Some shame? Uh, I once, I won't mention this teacher's name, but it's one teacher I stopped working with. Uh, that's why I won't mention his name. And he was a nice enough man. and He was in very good shape, but obviously an older man. And I asked him what I thought was an innocent question. And I said, how old are you? And he just got very embarrassed and he went, um, uh, you know, he didn't want to answer. And I said, I'm just asking how old you are. Uh, and he said, I'm in my 70s. I, I asked how old, he said, I'm in my 70s. Does that mean 71, 79? I mean, wh- and, I, I, and I saw that uh, it was very, he had a, uh, there was a certain, a lot of vanity around, you know, he had a very trim physique, uh, done a lot of yoga. He was a yoga teacher. And it just, I saw what would a certain thing. It's not isn't the only reason, but um, so that we suffer. In other words, if you attach to the body that way, or if your weight isn't exactly what it's supposed to be in the culture at a certain time, or if your features don't 
fit the way the latest models look, then we walk around with images that are tarnished. Well, we feel there's something wrong with us and we feel all kinds of problems come out of this simply because we identify with the body. Um, I learned it in the most dramatic way with a, a yogi some years ago. It was a, a woman that uh, had been coming to retreats and to interviews for quite a few years and we'd had many exchanges. She had one arm since childhood and the one arm uh, so was such a problem that she so identified herself with her body and that she had one arm, that there was almost nothing, every, whatever we talked about, it always came back to that she had one arm. And it led to lots of depression and self-doubt and awful feelings that she had about ourselves. I tried everything and I tried to be kind. I did. Everything. One day I was just, uh, I don't know what, it wasn't out of wisdom, it was just out of exasperation. <laughs> and I said, you know, this may sound crazy, but I think you're the biggest egomaniac I've ever met. And first she was taken aback and then she was delighted. You know, people who have a handicap often are treated very carefully. You know, people walk tiptoe around them. And so no one would say something like that. You know, like, you're an egomaniac because we don't say that to people who have one arm because we're overprotective. But what I meant was, okay, you have one arm, I understand. But are you going to destroy your whole life? Because you, you were born with one arm by seeing it's, that's the only thing that you can say about yourself. She was quite a lovely, intelligent, sensitive person. And so from that, I learned a lot. I mean, I just learned how fiercely we can get trapped by an identification like that. And to some degree, it was helpful for her as well uh, to understand that that's egotism too. We tend to think of egotism as something very positive or something someone's getting a lot of something. But people, the other flip side of that is just as egotistical. That is, we have an incredible negative self-image about the body, let's say. What is that? That's, it's the same game. It's the same trap. One side is that we like our body. We like how it looks. We like how it uh, appears to others. And we work very, very hard, you know, feeding it and massaging it and oiling it. And we do exercising it. But what it really needs, we need to rub in some wisdom into it. It's got enough oils and, and moisturizing creams and night creams. What it lacks is a little bit of wisdom because uh, we all get old and we all go through the, this whole thing. Uh, why do we, why torment each other? You know, what's the point? No, no, no one wins. There isn't, those with good bodies don't win. Those with bad bodies don't win. You know, no one wins. The whole thing just is ignorance. Okay. Um, and clearly, if you move over, let's say, to the university in the uh, intellectual r- uh, realm, people don't identify with their bodies so much, perhaps, but with their thoughts. And just to disagree with somebody's ideas sometimes in the university. And it's, it's like you've tr- just tried to kill them, try to cut their head off, <laughs> you know. Because that idea is them. It's not an idea that they had. It is them. It's their baby, their creation. They gave birth to it. But what they really gave birth to, from our point of view here, is what the Buddha is saying, is selfing. The I organized itself around a particular body of thoughts. My theory. And, of course, not only is there suffering for that person, but for everyone else, heaven help them if they disagree with the theory. You can see I have some stuff about universities. 
<laughs> I spent a lot of time in them. And then the, I got pardoned some years ago. Okay. They let me out for good behavior. And obviously anything. We can grasp onto anything and use it as the basis for forming some sense of ourself. And then suffer when people like what we think we've identified with. It's good. We like it. It does feel good. But it doesn't always work. And there's, there's nothing that pleases everyone. And so, inevitably, we run into problems. Okay. What this leads to now as we keep, as we move, is it becomes very subtle, the examination of egotism, so that even certain forms of selflessness, that is, could be good works, let's say certain forms of religious work, uh, the person could be, from one point of view, there could be a lot of generosity. But if, the, if you look closely, if that generosity, the person could even give up everything. But if there's still this I and mine in it, let's say taking credit for being so generous, then there's still going to be that suffering. It gets to be very, very subtle. There's a Jewish joke which captures it. Probably some of you know it. It's the high holidays in the synagogue. And the rabbi gets up and goes to the front and the community is there. Everyone is, it's just packed. It's full. Everyone is there. And the rabbi has got his full religious clothing on and suddenly falls to the floor and starts pounding the floor and crying and screaming, I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. I'm just absolutely nothing. I'm a no one. And then the assistant rabbi follows and suddenly he runs up and he's also very beautifully dressed and he starts pounding the floor and gnashing of teeth and screaming, I'm also, I'm nothing, I'm absolutely a nobody. And then the janitor in his overalls, he comes running up and he says, I'm a nothing, I'm nobody. And then the rabbi turns to the assistant rabbi and says, look who thinks he's a nobody. So it's a tricky game, you know. Okay, now what the Buddha is saying, this this idea I think can be helpful, that from from moment to moment, uh, things happen to us and sometimes, not always, or I think we'd be insane. In other words, if, if we were selfing all day long, constantly claiming everything as I and mine. Open a door. I open that door for you and here's, I give you this glass of water. You want to know what time? I'm giving you the time. It's my watch and I'm giving you the time. I don't have to do this, but I'm going... I think we would all just fall over from exhaustion and... So there are breaks. During the day, there are times and there's some of our happiest moments when we forget about ourselves and we just do. We just function. We do something, whatever it is, or we just are in that moment. But also, there are times in the day when what happens is, no matter what it is, and it could be opening a door, uh, what happens is something in us, there's the birth of this I or mine, and it, there's attachment, there's a grasping on to whatever it is, and if there is no, and here's the key thing for us, why it, why it isn't hopeless. If there's no awareness, then there's, there's an actual birth of I. The I is born. And as soon as I is born, very shortly, mine is born. You know, once you create an I, it's almost immediate that that I 
things belong to it. It starts possessing this and possessing that. And all of that becomes the basis for how the person's going to feel. Now, we can't stop that from happening. Have you noticed how your mind is out of control? It's ungovernable. By now, you should really know that. You know, you might have all kinds of plans for what your sitting is going to be and what's going to happen and what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. Forget it. It doesn't work that way. It's hopeless. Totally ungovernable. What It's nature unfolding. And what turns up in the mind, in the heart, in a given sitting is what turns up. And some of us have been rather surprised, right? Incredible strong emotions that for a few people have lasted for days. Sometimes wonderful things. I'm not saying... Uh, it's always painful, but there's, I think it's safe to say there's a, a huge unknown here, you know, that we don't know when something's going to come up. And so, this, it's like a little machine, you know, this I, it's sort of the engine that moves us all day. I, I, I'm going here, I'm going to get that, I'm going to eat my meal, and then I'll go to my sitting, and then I'll go upstairs and change into a different outfit, because I can come down from my next sitting, and I'll look better in my new outfit. Uh, we do it, so we're doing that a lot. And we can't stop a lot of that. We certainly, it's hard, the mind will do a lot of it, even if we don't follow suit. It's, uh, it's ungovernable. It's like uh, the secretion of, of juices, you know, in the digestive system. The mind just keeps secreting these ideas, you know, just, they come out, I and mine, I and mine, claiming this and that. If you try to stop it, it's repression. You'll just be cutting things off, and it'll be more egotism, trying to not be an egomaniac. And that's what the, the, the rabbi and the, that's what that's about. But what we can do, we get back to now to sati and panya, if you recall, uh, truth discerning awareness or mindfulness plus wisdom, mindfulness plus discernment. That is, as that capacity in us develops, and that's everything that we've been saying tonight is leading up to one of the most important aspects of vipassana. It's insight into this process that we're just hinting at tonight. So that when, let's say, this I is born in a given moment, and it could be born around anything, something very trivial or something very important. Because more and more, because of the practice, we're able to accompany it with awareness. If awareness and a bit of wisdom is there, the selfing emerges, the I emerges. But if it's got some awareness that meets it as it happens, we can see the process happening. We can see this I and mine and even the attachments And it's like the poison is taken out of a snake. It's not dangerous when we're aware. When when the contact is blind, when when delusion is dominating, when that kilesa is dominating, then the I and mind takes over. And then we have the battle of egos in the world, small egos of people and whole societies and families and so forth. So the key then is, first of all, to develop this awareness and discernment. Remember, the awareness is this ability to land on an object, to just to be present. And the discernment is to begin to see just what's happening, to kind of tease out the significance of it, like we did with the physical pain. Well, it's not that different here. Because, have you heard this one? This is kind of floating around meditation circles. How's it go? If somebody, I'm not sure I have it right, but it's something like uh, the lights are on, but there's nobody home. Has anyone heard that? What does that mean? The lights are on, but there's nobody home. Okay. 
I don't know what it means either. <laughs> but it, so- it sounds nice. No. What, what is meant by that is that this I and mine process is sort of laid to rest temporarily, or in some, let's say, liberated people. There isn't that. The arhants are, uh, let's say, people who, where this process is not a problem anymore. So that the light means there's full awareness. That is, uh, some people, when they hear this teaching, feel well, how can you live without having these self-images about yourself, these verbal um, and pictures about yourself? Now, I'm not saying that, you have to, that we have to cut them out. What I'm, saying, what I'm talking about is the attachment to them. So that if they come up and they're accompanied by mindfulness, then they're not dangerous. But if there's no mindfulness, they cause a lot of suffering. Okay, now, what some people will do is they'll try to imagine, well, if we don't have these kind of identities a sense of who I am in thoughts and words, well, then won't I just be crazy or will I be like a prefrontal lobotomy patient? Or uh, Is that what Buddhism's about? Is it sort of prefrontal lobotomy? Um, what is hard to understand is that it's actually possible to function, to function, in fact, quite beautifully without building a status out of the functioning. Take work. Uh, there's no problem in terms of suffering and being excellent at your work. If you're a doctor, lawyer, or Indian chief, or a housewife, whatever it is you're doing, the suffering doesn't come in from carrying out your function. Or as do surgery properly. That, that, that isn't ego. It's not saying that we just can't do anything. The problem is we then build a status out of it. In other words, I and mind comes in and grasps hold. It's born. In that moment, the surgeon is born. And there's going to be suffering. Because it's not just the function. Something else is added on to it. Now, when it says that the lights are out, the lights are on, but there's nobody home, it actually means the only way the lights can be on is if nobody's home. As soon as there's somebody home, the lights go out again, if you understand the image. Let me uh, use some uh, examples which come from some of the interviews. You know, no names, it'll be anonymous, you're all protected. <laughs> okay. Let's say you're a mother and you're worrying about you're on retreat and this, this is not an uncommon one for here and you're worrying about your children because you're away a little longer than you're used to being away. You're away a week or nine days and there's some concern. Now, that's only natural. But if you make mother, you know with a capital M? In other words, if mother is born, then you're going to have the suffering of a mother. Now, what I'm getting here is something over and above the carrying out of being a good mother. But it's sort of like the image of, well, am, am I, I'm not a good mother because I'm away on a retreat. And if I'm away on a retreat, then, uh, then that I'm a good mother is sort of tarnished. That self-image can't work. It's threatened. So it's not mothering that's the problem. But it's that we make being a mother, a good mother, into an image. And then we suffer having been born as a mother in that moment. Now, we can be born and in any number of ways. You can be born into a street person who's suffering, let's say, if they're thinking of themselves as a street person. You can be born as a monk and suffer being born as a monk. One, one teacher put it, if somebody's a monk and is walking along all day long thinking, I'm a monk, I'm a monk, I'm a monk, they're not a monk. Whereas if there's a lay person, they're walking along and, and the lights are on, there's nobody home, they're a monk in that sense. We're now not talking about outer trappings, particular clothing or um, 
anything of that sort, but the, in, the inner meaning of, of, of it. Now, let's say even somebody who has no home, sometimes they're happy. And very often it's happy because they're not thinking of themselves as being the kind of person who doesn't have a home. Or if you've lost a lot of money and let's say are bankrupt, have gone bankrupt, and there's some powerful suffering that's coming along with that, then we have to examine that to find out what is that about? In other words, if we made that kind, if that's been given birth to in that moment, then we'll suffer the unique kinds of suffering that goes along with that. Or if you're a yogi, many of us on this retreat have suffered the suffering of being a yogi. No, I'm sorry, a good yogi. If you make good yogi, you have problems. If you make bad yogi, you have problems. Just, just, do, yo- just do the practice. In other words, the, the practice is fine. That's not a problem. But then we build a status out of it. And we start peaking, because this comes up in interviews, and we see, well, some of these people are much better than I am. They seem much more at peace and happier. And, uh, and then, but there are other people. I think I'm happier than them. I think I'm more calm than that person. <laughs> yeah. okay. Okay. Now, the, the, the arhants who are, in a sense, the final fulfillment of our, uh, of our practice, uh, these are uh, fully enlightened people, beings. What is said of them is that in their, in their world, they, there's no one, they don't see anyone as superior, they don't see anyone as inferior, and they also don't see anyone as equal. Now, that's a hard one for some people to get. Many of us, many people who are very you know, liberal and meditate and eat vegetables and are against the war, we're also, we have an ideology of being equal. I'm not better than anyone, and so then someone comes to clean up your house and you're tripping all over yourself to make them feel like, I'm not better than you, even though you're cleaning up my house. So there's a concern with, it's the same thing, of either you're on top or you're on bottom or you're equal. It's all the same game. The Arhants have stepped out of that game. They're not playing anymore. And as a result, they're not suffering. That means they just are. You know, and they relate to a person as a person. Those other things are in the mind. If you give birth to your superior, you're going to have the sufferings of a superior. Sometimes it'll feel very good as you get your way and your subordinates listen to you. But other times, and this always happens, they revolt and they don't like you because you told them what to do. And then it's the other way around. If you're a subordinate and you make subordinate, I'm a subordinate, then if that's born, then everything gets taken in an ego sense. Your job becomes just another way of convincing you of how worthless you are. And so forth. Um, Why don't I end with, I couldn't do any better than what the Buddha said. Once again, don't attach to anything as being I or mine. Now, this is not like a global statement. It's something that we can actually see in our own life from moment to moment. We can see when we're doing it. You can begin to develop that sensitivity. You can begin to feel that in this moment you just created the sense of I did this for you or you did this to me. You know, sometimes it's how hurt I am. But in that hurtness, like if somebody has violated you, you've been very kind to them and lent them money and been just wonderful. And what do they do? They tell everyone that you're an awful person. 
and you feel very bad. At that moment, you can suffer that, but you can also see they've done you a favor because they flushed out this ego. And what you've seen is that it's so palpable. You can feel this sense of I. I did this for that person and I was over their house and when they were sick, I brought over soup and I you know, did all this stuff. And what do they do? They told my cousin that I'm not... And you can just feel the I is feverish. And it's very clear. At those moments, those are very good times to study that process because you can't miss it. It has nothing to do with whether you're right or wrong. It's just that egotism is there. Well, now, our practice is being a very gentle, very gentle, non-violent, non-judgmental mindfulness plus discernment to that. It's investigation. It's not to condemn ourselves for being egomaniacs. It's with great compassion it's looking at it with the eyes of compassion. It's seeing ourselves from the eyes, with the eyes of compassion. Because we're stuck with this, product, with this process. The burden of life is this. The huge burden that we're each carrying is the burden of me. I'm, I'm carrying Larry around. That's my burden and you have yours. And so the challenge of the practice is learning how to lay the burden of life down. It has to do with living and not so much with uh, turning everything that we do into some event in the realm of status and becoming. Okay, finally, I don't know if you hear this as practical or not. I feel it is. I feel that uh, just uh, being given this teaching some years ago uh, and then attempting to put it into practice has been very helpful for me in whatever small ways I've been able to use it, uh, it's helped me to do, uh, to let go of certain things that were really unnecessary. So that in your practice, let's say concretely you're sitting, from time to time, a large part of, of now in the Vipassana uh, aspect of the practice is things are coming up in the mind about the body and about the mind, about ourselves, how we're doing. Oh, you know, you know you've been watching it now for a few days. If you identify with these things, if you identify with a certain sitting, you know, a good sitting, and then you identify with that, and then you don't get it in the next sitting. First you make good yogi, and you're happy. But then in the next sitting, you make bad yogi, and then you're unhappy. Well, it's seeing, it's disentangling ourselves from this process. It's just, when the sitting is nice and serene and quiet, enjoy it, let it go. But now, if the eye comes floating in, become sensitive to that. Oh, boy, I'm really, I'm a good meditator. Again, it's not to punish yourself for that. It's simply to know that that's there in the moment. It's non-judgmental. Our practice is learning how to peacefully coexist. It's non-violent. How to peacefully coexist with whatever the mind throws up, whatever it is. The worst possible conclusion that you have about yourself. And that's, what, that's the beauty of self-knowledge. You, self-knowledge is... We have to be open to whatever turns up. You can't say that you're practicing self, kind of, sort of, practicing self-knowledge. You know, sort of, well, I'm, mostly I'm interested in what I can learn about myself. That's not self-knowledge. We're already doing that. We all know a fair amount about ourselves. Self-knowledge, what we're learning is the art of being totally open. Totally open to what is revealed by the practice. Now, as probably we all know, we're not totally open. We're more open to certain things that come up during the practice than others. And a large part of our practice is stretching, is 
uh, opening our heart to ourselves, essentially, more, each sitting, each time, a little bit, learning that uh, we can be with this, which before we couldn't, some, uh, some fear, some unflattering notion about ourselves, little by little, developing, making friends and reconciling ourselves with whatever turns up. Put another way is whatever turns up is welcome in wisdom work. In the work of wisdom, you can't have, I'm only interested in certain things that come up. That's not wisdom. That's, then we're back into self-images again. And so that's why at a certain point you'll see it's all about surrender. Surrendering to the truth of the way things are. Just let it all go. Just give it up. The struggle to be someone, to get somewhere, which doesn't mean you have to be lazy or not have a job or be good at what you do. It's more this kind of birth, this mental birth of I and mine that's added to what we do. It's not in the things of the world. You can do everything that you're doing if if it's reasonable. It's more changing our relationship to how we do these things and how we relate to ourselves and others. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.